Let me encourage you now to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews as we continue our journey together through this great sermon. This book is actually a word of exhortation or a sermon which urges the hearers to do things. The book is full of warnings that are severe, but it's also full of encouragement that is filled with hope. And so today we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 5 verses 11 through chapter 6 and verse 3 where it's another parenthesis as he's expounding the supremacy of Christ, especially in his priesthood. He sort of takes um, leave here to uh, preach to those who are listening. There's an old adage that proclaims or expresses how people feel when a particular preacher gets a little more personal than they would prefer. When he's speaking in general terms, then he's preaching, of which people heartily approve. But when he gets personal, when he actually speaks to areas of real sin and worldliness in people's own actual lives, they say it's not preaching. But now he has gone to what? Meddling. He is meddling. And that is exactly what this preacher does, the author of Hebrews, is he really gets up in their face in this passage and challenges this church. He basically tells them in so many words, grow up. It's time for you to grow up. It's time for you to get off the milk diet and get on the meat diet. And so here now the word of the Lord as we read from Hebrews chapter 5 beginning in verse 11. About this and the this refers to Christ being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of dead, and the eternal judgment. And this we will do. If God permits. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you again for this text. We know that in this text there is your word which is alive and powerful and sharp and is able to discern the thoughts and intents of our heart and to criticize the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And I pray that we wouldn't be dull of hearing today, but we would actually hear your word as it's preached to us today and we pray this in Jesus name Amen 
There was a preacher in a rural church in Mississippi, or could have been Tennessee, or could have been Alabama, any of them. And he got up, and he was like lit up. And he started preaching with such power about the two things that that church was guilty of that were driving him crazy. And he'd never preached like this. I mean, the man was burning up before them. And he preached about the apathy and the indifference in this congregation. Just the absolute apathy, lethargy, and indifference. And so after the sermon and the final amen, two men were walking out and they were overheard saying to one another, one of the men said to the other, what's up with Pastor Bob today? I mean, I've never seen him like this. Do you think he had a fight with his wife on the way to church? Do you think he's had a real bad week? And the other man looked at him and said, I don't know, and I don't care. <laughs> Apathy and indifference. And that's what the challenge is today, to become dull of hearing. And that phrase, dull of hearing, is really very interesting. It forms an inclusio around uh, chapter 5 uh, and verse uh, 14 and verse chapter 6, verse 12. And the word literally means sluggish. It means uh, lethargic. It means resistant. It means letting your mind wander, so to speak. And so he wants to teach them. He, he wants to take them into Christ's priesthood, not being the priesthood of Aaron, but being in the order of Melchizedek. And that's something that's important, and it's something that he wants to speak to, and he wants to talk about it. But he realizes he can't explain it to the people, not because it's such an esoteric mystery, which only the Illuminati or the enlightened few are capable of entering into, or because the author himself feels in to try to explain it as an instructor, but because those to whom he is writing are dull of hearing. This, in turn, does not suggest that the hearers in themselves are intellectually or spiritually inferior, for it's not a question of what they are by nature, but what they have become by default. The implication being that this was not the case with them originally when he came and preached God's gospel to them and they were made alive and spiritually functioning, but rather what they have become. They have become slack. And their slackness has affected their attentiveness and their capacity to receive and retain solid instruction. Indeed, if they don't stir themselves from their culpable inertia, they may expect to find themselves as a rebellious uh, a house who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not. For this reason, our author is conscious of the difficulty of the task which faces him, that is, to instruct this church in the deeper truths of the priesthood of Christ, and he can't do it or won't do it at this time because they are dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. Of hearing. Um, you ever been driving anywhere in your car on a route that you normally go? This happened to me Friday. I, I got up early, went and picked up something for breakfast down the street, maybe two miles away, and was coming back home. And I remember turning out of the place where I bought the food, and I remember driving, 
And the next thing I knew, I looked up, and I was at the fifth light. I do not, to this day, remember the other four lights. I don't know if they were green or red. I don't remember. But I was so preoccupied in my mind with what I was doing that I was totally oblivious to It was just like that passage of time. It was just blotted out. And that's what happens to many of us when we come to church on Sunday morning. And the pastor says, open your Bibles, please, and your mind goes everywhere else. I know when I was a, a boy, 12 years old, I used to count the bricks in the wall and then figure out how to multiply how many bricks were in this whole church. And uh, anything but listen. And the writer is saying this, you're being dull of hearing is symptomatic of a much deeper problem. He, all, he, all, he goes even so far as to say that by this time, as long as you have been a Christian, and you've been a Christian for a considerable period of time, that has elapsed since your conversion, you ought to be teachers. Now, he's not talking about taking the pulpit over and preaching a message or necessarily teaching a, 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 a class in an official capacity, but rather that they ought to be su sufficiently advanced in their comprehension of Christian doctrine and teaching that they would be able to edify, to teach, to build up those who are young in the faith. They should be able to be teachers who uh, are able to take people who are new to the faith and lead them into deeper truth. But deplorably, they are now so far from having maintained a normal progress that they've slipped back into a stage where they need a teacher to instruct them again in the first principles of God's Word. Their spiritual comprehension to their shame, corresponds to their shame, to that of children in a kindergarten who are unable to read and write and have to start at the very beginning with the ABCs. Notice that he says, you need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their uh, faculties trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. He goes back and he uses the word basic principles, and that's the Greek word stoikia. And it meant the basic principles of the universe. For, for philosophers, it meant fire, water, air, and um, earth. For teachers, it meant the elementary principles, the alphabet, the ABCs. He said, it's like we need to come to you and teach you the ABCs all over again because your faith is no better than that of a child in spiritual understanding. Milk is the only diet you can handle in your immature con uh, condition. You can't take the solid food of sound Christian doctrine. To go on living on milk and baby food is indicative that you are suffering arrested development and not the recipient's of the letter have evidently failed to advance beyond or have relapsed into a state of spiritual infancy. Instead of being strong and vibrant and well-developed, they are weaklings in the faith. Paul said the same thing about the church in Corinth. 
where he said, I, brethren, chapter 3, I, brethren, could not address you as spiritual men, but as men of flesh, as babes in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even today you are not yet ready for it. And so the tragic pattern of the apostolic age is repeated all too frequently in subsequent centuries of the church's history. But our author, author explains that the underdeveloped individual who can tolerate only a diet of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Look at that word, righteousness. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, if you read much about what other people think he means by that, you get a lot of interesting things. But I think, fundamentally, since they are infants in the faith, I think what he means by the word of righteousness here is the gospel. Word logos, often in the New Testament, points to the reality of the powerful gospel which is able to save us. And I think he's talking about the gospel that speaks to righteousness. He's not so much here talking about ethical, moral truth and right conduct as he is to talk about the fundamental core of righteousness, the teaching about righteousness, which is fundamental to the Christian faith, namely an insistence upon Christ's righteousness as opposed to self-righteousness or works righteousness. One of the fruits of being dull of hearing and being an infant in the faith is you have no working acquaintance or knowledge of what the Bible calls imputed righteousness, the active obedience of Christ on your behalf. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, and you might want to turn there, hold your finger here, and turn to Philippians chapter 3, and look at what the Apostle says. He says in verse 7 of chapter 3, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so the Apostle Paul, now our translations clean up the term. When he says I count my own righteousness as skubala in the Greek. Scubula, which means dung, which is the nicest way I can put it, is poo-poo. Paul is basically saying, when I look at my attempt to live up to the standards and be righteous before God, my righteousness is dung. And only mature Christians, those on the road to maturity, are beginning to understand that. Because we live as if so often our righteousness, it just comes natural to us to see that God accepts us upon the basis of how well we're doing or how, how uh, our level of achievement is going on. Christ never looked for achievement. He looked for faith in himself. And Paul learned to look outside of himself. He looked at his past. He looked at his resume. He looked at everything there was to describe who he was before God. And as a Pharisee and as a member of the Sanhedrin Council. And as a remarkably strict 
devotee to the law of God, finally saw that that righteousness was standing in way of the only righteousness that counts. And until he saw his self-righteousness, he never repented of it and then received Christ's righteousness. You see, Christ came to do more than just die for our sins and our place. He did that. That is his suffering obedience, his passive obedience. But he fulfilled the law so that now I have his resume. He took my resume and died for it because it's scubula. That's what it is. means nothing. Nothing before God. And he gave me his life, his resume, his obedience. And from believing in that and understanding that comes a righteous life. Now righteousness as moral conduct or ethics flows out of understanding justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that he is my righteousness. And that it is his robe that covers my nakedness. That the most beautiful thing about me is Jesus, not me. And that I am right now as righteous before God as I will ever be because I have the righteousness of Christ. And we know that God accepts the righteousness of Christ because he was delivered unto death for our sins but raised again for our justification. He is now at the right hand of God serving as our priest, our advocate, our mediator, and someday will come again and take us to himself. But here's the thing. These people were not skilled enough to understand the gospel. And I just think that that is such a powerful, powerful truth. The first Christians were the first to really grasp initiation into justification by faith. It is the foundation upon which the whole structure of the Christian faith is erected, and it is precisely this foundation which the Hebrew readers are in danger of despising and abandoning. And the author is now seeking, as it were, to wean them from the debility of the milk stage into which they have sunken back and to bring them on to the solid diet of the doctrine of the high priesthood of Christ, who is their Melchizedek, is the king of righteousness. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have progressed beyond the helplessness of infancy to a position of adult competence and responsibility. And within the biblical perspective, perfection belongs properly only to God. And absolute maturity, which coincides with perfection, has been achieved at the human level, as we have seen, only by the incarnate Son of God. Jesus Christ. Perfection is the goal to which we are advancing, to which we are called, but which we will not attain until the appearance of our glorious Redeemer at the end of the age. When seeing Him as He is, we believers will at last be fully conformed to His likeness at that day. Meanwhile, Christian maturity is relative. That is relative in terms of degree to which we have advanced from spiritual infancy into the journey to the perfection of Christ-likeness. Therefore, Paul declares, I have not yet reached perfection, but I press on, hoping to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. 
And so the criterion or canon of maturity is always the fullness and perfection of Christ. Those who are not being nourished and strengthened by the solid food of sound doctrine are no better than spiritual infants in danger of never reaching Christian manhood. Their great need is to grow up into Christ. Our author explains that mature persons, the one he is speaking of, are those who have their faculties trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. In other words, they're like athletes. They're like Christian athletes who, as a result of a single-minded self-discipline and application to the contest in which they have entered, are people of spiritual sensitivity and discernment. And it's not just a hearty few, but all believers who show this athletic zeal. Hence, the exhortation is addressed to all to run the race unencumbered and to persevere. Like the serious athlete who trains himself so he is at the peak of condition for the contest and the conflict, the mature Christian is equipped to face the responsibility and demands and endure the end the rigors of the conflict by the habitual exercise of his power. He is no longer a child of the faith. His maturity is displayed in his discernment by which he is able to distinguish between good and evil. Now what's he talking about here, good and evil? Most people would take it to mean ethically. He understands ethically wrong from right, good from evil. While it may include that, it is not merely that. Because of the context and because of what he says in the early part of chapter 6, I believe what he's addressing here is distinguishing between good doctrine and false doctrine. The ability to distinguish between the truth and false doctrine. Good versus evil. Because he's so grounded in the gospel. You know, people often ask me about other religions, and they, they often have conversations about, well, you know, they're all just different ways to get to God. And my stock answer for that, to everyone who ever says that to me, is that there are really only two religions in the whole world. Just two. One of them is works, and the other one is grace. Christianity, properly understood, is salvation by grace alone. Every other religion in the universe is basically works righteousness. I have to make myself acceptable to my God. I have to appease my God so that he won't do bad things to me. I have to sacrifice. I have to earn. I have to have karma. I have to do better at this. In other words, I earn my way. I receive reward. I, I get all of this by what I do. I'm the center of the universe. But Christianity comes along and says grace. C.S. Lewis was once absent from his little cadre of friends who often met together and discussed things at Oxford, and all of these teachers were discussing the great religions of the world. Lewis came in late, happened to slip into the meeting, and he asked them, what are you talking about? And they said, well, we're talking about all the great religions of the world. And C.S. Lewis said, there are only two, works and grace. And the Christian who is mature understands that, and he's able to distinguish because he's spent time in God's Word, grounded in the truth of the gospel. He's able to discern true doctrine, sound doctrine, 
from false teaching. Have you ever been listening to anyone? And you just couldn't put your finger on it. You just couldn't grasp what it was they were saying. But almost in your, in your gut, for lack of a better term, or, or in your, your uh, cognitive field, or your grid, your worldview, something's resting uneasy. It's like, that's, there's something about that. That's just not right. That's not true. Uh, I, I can't buy that. And the reason why that's so powerful and effective to you is if you're grounded in the truth, you know a lie. I, I talked to a, a friend one time who was working as a teller in a bank. And I asked them, I said, well, how, how do you people detect counterfeit money? I said, because I've actually had some counterfeit money, and I put it down to the real money, and I couldn't tell any difference. I said, how do you do it? What's the magic? What's the story? And I said, do you study every counterfeit bill that you've ever received so that you'll recognize it when it comes along? He said, no, we don't do that. I said, what do you do? He said, we study the real money so carefully and so intensely for a long time that the minute something comes along that doesn't look like real money, we know it just like that. That's what I'm talking about in this sermon. You're grounded in the truth. You get the gospel, and when you don't hear the gospel, you know you're not here. And when you're hearing law preaching, and the law needs to be preached. Let me qualify myself here. The law needs to be preached to strip you of your self-righteousness and drive you to Christ. The law never needs to be preached as a way to establish your own righteousness. It is a rule of life for the Christians, but law preachers beat you to death every week. They just take out the law and beat you and beat you down and beat you down. And after a while, I went to a presbytery meeting. <laughs> and one of the most famous professors in one of our seminaries was preaching at my presbytery meeting. And he preached a minor prophet. And it was like lightning bolts and thunder, law. And he's a great preacher. And I love him. But it was law, law, law. And I was sitting there under the blows going, somebody help me. <laughs> Send me some grace. Just give me a little drop of grace of dying here. And some little first-year uh, uh, pastor who just graduated from seminary got up to do communion after this august pastor had preached. And he said, well, we've heard the law from our dear professor. <laughs> he said, let's talk about grace and he explained the supper and I have to tell you it was like my soul quieted I just felt at rest I felt peace I was disturbed that's what the reader of Hebrew writer of Hebrews is talking about he's talking about learning the gospel so thoroughly that you're able to discern when something comes along that doesn't match up to it now he says he admonishes these people. He tells us what spiritual maturity is, and then he tells us to go on to maturity. And so in verse 2, there's a therefore there, which tells us that there's a link in the thought and logic with the preceding passage. The author has rebuked his readers for their arrested development as Christians, of which their spiritual immaturity and dullness of comprehension our discernment and discernment are symptomatic. Now he exhorts them to do something about it. 
Now he tells them to shake themselves out of their torpor and to grow into intelligent, energetic adulthood lest the curse of God and his blessings should rest on them instead of his blessings should rest on them. So he begins to talk about what he calls the elementary doctrines of Christ. That is the first principles of God's word. And the, he tells them to go on to maturity that follows on what has been said to those who are mature in verses 12 through 14. Now he openly confronts those whom he is addressing with a challenge, which uh, is implicit in the reproaches of chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. But he does so in no spirit of pharisaical self-righteousness. For good instructor as he is, he identifies. Notice he says, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ. So he includes himself in the admonition. He's not lording it over them as someone who's arrived, but rather as a fellow traveler, a fellow pilgrim, a fellow believer on the journey. And he says to them, let's move forward together. And so... He tells them what exactly that's going to look like. And uh, he recognizes that the power of the Spirit is that which will move them forward. To leave the elementary doctrines here, uh, which John Owen called the holy gales of the Spirit of God do breathe on us, and we are in a blessed tendency toward striving for perfection. To leave the elementary doctrines here does not mean to despise or abandon them any more than a pupil who learned the ABCs can dispense with the alphabet. We use it every day, all the time, every time we open our mouths, every time we communicate. The letters of the alphabet are indispensable to the formulation and communication of the most advanced learning, for progress to maturity is always cumulative. So the first principles of Christian truth are basic to every stage of development. They're called a foundation. You only lay a foundation once if you have an adequate foundation. And that's what he's going to talk about here. The point is the beginning, not the stopping place. It is the door to progress and the springboard to uh, maturity in Christ. And so the elementary doctrines of Christ... Uh, that they're being exhorted to advance to are listed for us and they are a foundation he calls them uh well he he goes back to when he was first encountering these people and he proclaimed the gospel of jesus christ to them he presented jesus as messiah and lord in whom all of the old testament scriptures find their fulfillment whose death was in, in accordance with the redemptive purposes of god who is now risen and exalted over all and so the message evokes the response of repentance faith and baptism and so he, he begins to build on that. A foundation is something that is either there or not there. It's something that once laid uh, can, it is not something that once laid can be laid again. Consequently, there can be no question of laying the foundation on which the Christian life is built. And so the foundation is described here as consisting of the elementary doctrines of Christ which are listed under six heads, repentance, faith, cleansing, laying on of hands, resurrection, 
and judgment. Let's look at these quickly for a moment. First, he speaks of repentance from dead works. This was the main theme of the preaching of John the Baptist, who's stressing that the judgment of God was at hand, and he admonished the sanctimonious Pharisees and Sadducees to bear fruit that befits repentance, and to the tax collectors to exalt no more than was legal, and to the soldiers to abstain from bullying and intimidation. The call to repentance was also sounded by Christ, who warned his hearers that if they did not repent, they would likewise perish in Luke 13. Repentance is the changing of our mind and our attitude and turning away, reversing our position, displaying in the renunciation of any kind of self-adequacy and in turning to God in sorrow for sinfully robbing him of his glory which is due to him alone. And that's the first step on the road which leads the sinner back home to the father. As the prodigal son came to himself, he began to turn and go back home to the father. But what is this repentance from dead works that he's talking about? The expression dead works is interesting. It's used only a couple of times in the book of Hebrews. But it presents briefly and suggestively a sort of theological shorthand, the teaching of Scripture regarding the state of unregenerate man and his activities. The effect of sin is deadly, with the consequences that before repentance and faith, man is described in Ephesians 2 as being dead in his sins. Accordingly, his every sin is a dead work. It's a dead work. Calvin said, either because it works death or because it arises from the spiritual death of the soul. So everything that is done by an unregenerate person to attempt to get God into God's favor is what is called dead works. Gentile and Jewish, depending on the background of those who are in view, the dead works of the Gentile are associated with licentiousness and idolatry. These are the works of which the man who comes to repentance is ashamed. He recognizes his barren and unprofitable nature and that they end in death. For the religious Jew, however, it is, it is the merely external and self-righteous compliance with the requirements of the law which gives rise to dead works. His sin, that is the religious person, is worse than the idolater For though outwardly righteous in men's eyes, inwardly it's full of hypocrisy and crookedness, iniquity. The law, so far from justifying him, condemns him. Because together with every other man, he's a lawbreaker. Alienation from God, who is the source of all life, rather through idol worship and immorality of heathen living, or through self-centered religiosity and works righteousness of Judaism can only result in death. Remember the prodigal son and the elder brother. The elder brother was as alienated from the father as the prodigal was, even though he didn't leave home. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to say, the first thing that happens to lay the foundation is a repentance from the dead works, whether they're religiously driven or driven by paganism. Then he mentions faith toward God. That is an act of trust and commitment which follows 
act, the act of repentance and renunciation. They are inseparably connected. You cannot separate them. Faith and repentance are like two sides of one coin. Faith and repentance are like the two wings on an airplane. Both are necessary, but one gives birth to the other. And the reason why these people were struggling with faith and filled with doubt in this church was that faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the Word of God. And these people were dull of hearing. What do you do if you're struggling with faith issues? Immerse yourselves in the Word of God. Now, it's faith here, we're restored, and then he talks about ablutions, washings. He could be referring to all of the baptisms found in Scripture. There were proselyte baptisms in Judaism. There were washings and ablutions as part of the Old Covenant. There's John's baptism. There's Jesus' baptism. There's Christian baptism. But he's basically talking about that act by which we are set apart, the sacrament of baptism, where we are cleansed and washed. Then he moves on to talk about the laying on of hands. And that's pretty interesting. Um, the laying on of hands usually accompanied by baptism as a sign and symbol of the reception of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the laying on of hands was the idea of separating someone to a particular calling of God, setting them apart for that. But here, in the early foundation of a believer, I think it has to do with uh, after the baptism, hands were laid on the person so that they would uh, recognize that they had received the Holy Spirit uh, and that the Holy Spirit indwelt them. It was an act of blessing. And then finally, he talks about what? Judgment. Resurrection of the dead. And he talks about judgment. Well, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment are the two final components of this foundation that he's talking about that we need established, that we have as our foundation, which provides us a firm place to stand. But it also launches us forward to deepening our understanding of the gospel. And so the idea here is the fact that Judgment, uh, baptism, that is, is viewed as a judgment itself, which is the first event, is the symbol of judgment on the unregenerate life and of the resurrection to newness of life in Christ. Um, but it also has an eschatological reference, that is, of one day... Uh, we will all rise as Christ returns, we'll receive our new bodies, and judgment will happen both to believers and unbelievers. And so we all must give an account of ourselves to God. Those of us who are believers, in my, ju in my judgment, at the judgment, pretty much going to point at Christ. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do, fall at his feet and worship him. But Christ rose from the tomb. He is the resurrection and the life. And then he says something very interesting here in verse 3 of chapter 6. And this we will do if God permits. Now, 
Sometimes we use the phrase, God willing, I'll do this and that if God willings, but we may be sure that the qualification, if God permits, is something far more than a pious cliché. The point is, the Christian's life is in the Lord's hands, and all planting is the subject to the overruling will of God. The principle is explained in James where he speaks about going to this city and accomplishing this and accomplishing that if the Lord wills. So, here's what this passage is saying. This passage has defined for us what spiritual immaturity is, what causes it, what it looks like. What about you? Are you somebody who is hungry for the Word of God? Are you somebody that has a taste for it, a desire for it, that you want to be fed, that you long to hear the Word? Opportunities abound for you in this day and time to hear the Word of God constantly, but to hear the gospel of God and to return back to the gospel constantly, understanding your identity and your foundation in Christ. Or are you a person who is spiritually immature? To the idea of you speaking with someone and just sharing the gospel with them or basic fundamental Christian truth intimidates you. You would say, Pastor, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. I don't even know what to say. Then you need to hear the word of God today. You're dull of hearing. You need to stir yourself by his spirit. The spiritually mature person is the one who is like an athlete. You know, people often ask me questions and They'll say, well, you know, Pastor, how long did it take you to preach that sermon? How long did it take you studying and spending time to preach that sermon? And I always tell them, 64 years. That's how long it took me. 64 years. Now, I haven't been studying the Bible for 64 years, but I have been studying the Bible for 45 years. 45 years every day of my life, I study this book. And one of the things that I have found, have I ever been dull of hearing? Sure, I've been dull of hearing. Sure, I've gotten to the place where I feel like I don't want to hear. People are always handing me books to read and always giving me sermons to listen to and asking me if I saw this or heard this uh, on, on uh, this particular preacher do this and that. And sometimes I just want to scream, I don't want it. <laughs> I don't want to hear it anymore. I'm just tired. Give me a minute. And then I realize that my heart has drifted away from the Lord. But I long to hear the gospel. I love it. I can't hear it too much. I need it. It strengthens me. It increases my faith. But that is what the author's talking about. And then he urges them to go on from this. Next week, he's going to bring up one of the more controversial passages in all the Bible and I've already started working on it. It's a very difficult passage to understand, uh, mainly because it'll about scare the liver out of everybody. But he's not doing this to scare people. He's not doing this to bruise the conscience of people who lack assurance, but rather to encourage us, to encourage us to stir ourselves. It is so easy. All you have to do to become lethargic and dull of hearing is nothing. It's all you have to do. All you have to do is nothing. So I'm assuming that you're being here today. You're sitting under the Word. You're being taught the Word. One of the things that grieves me, and let me, let, me, let me do my one preacher thing today, 
is the number of people that don't take opportunity to expose themselves to the Word of God. We have Sunday school classes here for all ages every Sunday on Sunday morning. And I would say about one-fifth of the size of this group shows up for Sunday school. One-fifth. We have some of the best teaching and best teachers you will find anywhere. By the way, I don't do it, so I can say that. Or I do it very little. Where are you? Where are you? Why are you not there? I mean, what, what is it? What a, why are you not hungry for that? It is so soul-feeding and stirring. Why, why, do you, why do you, as the writer in Isaiah says, why do you spend your life on that which is not bread? Why do you not feed upon the Word of God? People spend hours in preparation. Some of our teachers spend every day of the week pouring over the Word to try to teach you. Very few people come, just a very small percentage. And it's almost like I want to write a letter to everybody who goes, where in the Bible are you exempt from this? You're not. And that's not the only time that you are exposed to God's Word. But, but there's got to be a hunger there. There's got to be a hunger there. There's got to be a desire. Otherwise, you're just bouncing around with every wind of doctrine. So, let me encourage you to take every advantage, and I know there are other places you can be fed, but i got to tell you, the quality of what you will hear here is unbelievable. And you say, well, I can go on the Internet and listen to Tim Keller, or I can go on the Internet and listen to John Piper, or I can go on the Internet and listen to... Well, good. Do it. But recognize, there are other people who have something to say. They do. So, that means that you don't get to have that leisurely breakfast that you like on Sunday morning. You've got to be here a little early. So let me beat you with the law a little bit more. No. <laughs> let me tell you what the writer of Hebrews just said. Grow up, grow up, grow up, grow up, grow up. Grow up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your word, the way it speaks to us, addresses us in our need, uh, encourages us when we're stale, uh, arrests our attention. Lord, I know I have been dull of hearing, and I repent of being dull of hearing, being too consumed by so many other compelling interests that I find my appetite for your word being dulled and my senses being dulled to the truth. And I pray that you will enable me to repent of that and to return in a refreshed manner to be taught and learn and sit at your feet, to be more of a Mary and less of a Martha. And now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give as those who are hilariously grateful for your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.